Tonight we conclude our study of 2 Thessalonians. We're looking at chapter 3, beginning at verse uh, uh, 6, and we'll put the uh, verses on the screen uh, for us to follow along as we conclude the uh, second epistle to the Thessalonians, uh, written shortly after the first epistle, and as we mentioned when we studied 1 Thessalonians, it is... Uh, thought by most, 1 Thessalonians, to be the first epistle that Paul ever penned uh, around A.D. 52. And then the second epistle followed closely uh, behind the, uh, the first epistle. And um, these are great epistles, as are all of the books of the Bible. And uh, tonight we see uh, an introduction as we look at verse 6 of our text in chapter 3, an introduction to the church of discipline, something that is introduced to the church here in the second Thessalonian letter for the first uh, time, the first mention that we have of church discipline. It is not, of course, the last mention of it. Uh, the first Corinthian epistle uh, deals with the matter there, as you well know, I'm sure, of the man living with his uh, father's wife, his stepmother would be the, uh, the indication there. And the admonition there on the part of, of the Apostle Paul, the same writer of Second Thessalonians as he wrote First Corinthians, uh, for them to withdraw their fellowship from him, to deliver such a one to Satan, uh, that he his soul might be saved in the final day. Getting insight there into that, in that statement as to the primary purpose of, of discipline, that is to save the soul. It is not an excommunication as, uh, as the Catholic Church uh, uh, uses that term, it is an effort on the part of the church, and that's the key, an effort on the part of the church uh, to win back the soul that has departed from the faith. And so in the first uh, verse that we study tonight as we conclude the uh, study of Second Thessalonians, at verse 6, Paul says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. There's some important things that we need to appreciate here in this uh, admonition. Uh, you may recall that in the first Thessalonian epistle, it was the case that the apostle Paul admonished brethren there. Uh, he did some teaching and some admonition there concerning some problems that uh, existed in the church at Thessalonica. There was a misapprehension, as you recall, about the uh, second coming of Christ. And the misapprehension was that his second coming was going to be right away. And uh, some who thought because their loved ones in Christ had died and the Lord had not returned that they had lost their reward. Paul, of course, wrote to uh, correct that misapprehension and to admonish them to work with their hands, not to be uh, idle, to walk worthy of God, verse 12 of uh, chapter 2. In fact, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians at verse 11, he says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so there were admonitions that were given in the first epistle 
and references in the first epistle to admonitions that he had obviously given them while he was with them, verbal admonitions. Uh, but he says, as a father does his children. But what we now see in 2 Thessalonians, here at chapter 3 and verse 6, we see stronger measures that now Paul is implementing because those earlier admonitions, uh, those kinder, gentler admonitions, if you will, had not, um, had not been as effective as he would have hoped, obviously. And so he's calling now upon the church to take stronger measures. And there's something very important that we need to appreciate and learn from that in terms of the process of discipline, when discipline is necessary. One thing we need to learn, and we've talked about it before, is that all discipline, all church discipline, uh, does not take the form of withdrawal of fellowship. That is not where discipline begins when sin uh, rears its head in the church. That's not where it begins. It begins with the admonitions. It begins with the efforts that are made on the part of every member to bring back the wayward brother or sister, uh, the one who is involved in, in sin. That is discipline. That is discipline. However, it is tragic in the uh, time in which we live today and the time we have been uh, in before, times before, that as we have often said, uh, that's where discipline, it seems, with many congregations begins and ends. It begins and ends with admonitions to, uh, to come home uh, toward the wayward brother or sister, but if, they, if those admonitions go unheeded, that's where the discipline stops. What we learn from First and Second Thessalonians is that it cannot stop with those loving admonitions. It cannot stop with those efforts that are made to encourage the brother or sister to repent of his or her uh, sin. But it has to move on uh, to the next logical and scriptural phase or stage, and that is what we're looking at right here in Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. But this discipline that Paul is calling upon the church to exercise has been called the forgotten commandment, as we have mentioned before, because it is so little uh, and infrequently practiced in the Lord's church today in many congregations. And we're introduced to church discipline right here in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6, and we dare not ignore it if indeed it involves command. And if we doubt that it involves command, let's simply do a little previewing here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and go back to verse uh, 4, a verse we've already studied. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Verse 6, but we command you. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. Verse 12, now those who are such, we command. Command, 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 command. In four verses, we have the strong word command that is used by the Apostle Paul. And in this verse we're looking at right now at verse 6, the command is in reference to withdrawal of fellowship from every brother who walks disorderly. Now notice something else here in this verse. But we command you, it is a command, and to whom is the command issued? He does not say, now we command you elders. That word's not in there. You don't find the word elders in there. Are elders included in the command? Of course they are. But it is not the elders 
who are to carry out the discipline that Paul is commanding here when that discipline becomes necessary. When admonitions have failed and repentance has not been forthcoming and we get to this point where Paul was now as he wrote this second epistle to those who had not heeded his earlier admonitions and who needed some stronger measures, he did not issue the command to the elders alone, but he issued it to all the brethren. And that's a vitally important uh, point that we must understand if discipline, as the scriptures teach discipline, is to be effective, it cannot be carried out only by the elders, but it must be carried out by the church as a whole. There must be widespread support for that disciplinary process that, yes, admittedly, is initiated by the elders where the congregation has elders. They obviously take the lead in initiating the process, but they simply call upon the church to exercise the discipline. And if the church fails to respond to the admonition of the elders to do that, the whole process fails miserably because it fails in its purpose to bring about the kind of shame and guilt toward the individual who's being disciplined that hopefully will cause that individual to come home because he's lost something or she has lost something that is very precious. What is it? The fellowship of brothers and sisters, the social interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ. And when there is the loss of that social interaction and that fellowship together, then hopefully it brings that wayward sinner to his or her senses. But is it likely to do that if only the elders practice it and everybody else just goes on as though uh, nothing has changed? Why, of course not. But here's something else that's sobering. Those who fail to follow through with the admonition and fail to participate in properly exercised, and I emphasize properly exercised discipline, where it's been done lovingly, where it's been done patiently, and where every effort has failed to the point that you are now at Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 6 in the process. If we fail to cooperate in the process, we sin. We sin. There's no question about it. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? If indeed... If indeed discipline has been initiated properly and scripturally and patiently by the elders and the church is called upon to participate in that disciplinary process in the hope of saving the soul of that wayward brother or sister and we refuse to do so and we go on and carry on just as though nothing had ever happened and we have that person over for dinner or we go out to eat every Friday and we just keep doing that the way we did before that withdrawal took place. Who sins there? Who ignores the command of an inspired apostle? The one who ignores that command and does not participate. It's a serious matter. But we command you, brethren, not the elders alone. We command you, brethren. Now notice this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that the Apostle Paul is not making a suggestion here, nor is he simply issuing a command that is not backed up by the power or the authority of Christ. He is authorized by Christ to issue this command. It comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We well know that when we do something in the name of someone, we do it by that person's 
authority. Stop in the name of the law, the old expression uh, was used. That means stop by the authority invested in me as an officer of the law, if an officer is making that statement. Therefore, when Paul says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is equivalent to saying, we command you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you do what? That you withdraw from every brother who's not close to you or has no relationship to you and that you don't really care that much about and so it's not your relative, it's not your close friend, but I want you to withdraw from everybody else who's not in that category. Where do we find that? No, I want you to what? Follow the command regardless of who is affected. Is that always easy? Oh, of course not. Is it pleasant? Of course not. But it is, is it a command? Of course it is. Of course it is. In other words, we must follow the command in the fervent hope that the soul will be saved. What if the soul is not saved? It is still the command. And it serves other purposes, and it's not the purpose of our lesson tonight to go into a, a long study of the matter of discipline, but it has the impact of not only uh, letting the sinner know that we care about his or her soul, but it also lets the rest of the church know that we are not going to tolerate sin that is unrepented of and that is clearly being practiced and that it cannot be ignored. Sin in the camp, remember Achan in Joshua 7? Uh, that, that's a serious matter that was not ignored then and it sends a message even to this present dispensation that God has never tolerated sin among his people, nor will he do so. But it also lets the community know that we discipline our own, that the church disciplines her own, and that we are determined to the best of our ability to keep the church pure and to do what God expects us to do. Withdraw from every brother, every brother who what? Walks disorderly. What does it mean to walk disorderly? Well, it means to be out of step, literally, is the idea of being out of step. To be out of step does not necessarily mean simply being out of step in some manner while you're still a part of the congregation. Uh, leaving the congregation through unfaithfulness is out of step. If I understand anything about what out of step is, uh, that's AWOL. Uh, that's completely going AWOL. And yet there have been those, and we've mentioned before, who have said in regard to the matter of discipline, well, if somebody leaves us and just becomes unfaithful, they've withdrawn from us. We can't withdraw from them. They've already done it. Well, that, that indicates a gross misunderstanding of what we're talking about here and what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse uh, 6. Uh, the church does the withdrawing, not the individual uh, who is in sin. And so it's a disciplinary action on the part of the church toward the individual and leaving a congregation and saying, you can't withdraw from me, I've already withdrawn from you, is not scriptural uh, at all, not in the slightest, not in the slightest. That doesn't make one immune to discipline simply because he or she becomes unfaithful and no longer attends because that's being disorderly, is it not? That's way out of step. That's way out of step. Now, nothing is mentioned here specifically in this verse as to what was happening at Thessalonica that prompted this command. But we do get some insights into what was happening as we continue uh, to read, and we'll do that in a moment. But notice something else before we leave this verse. He says, 
Every brother who walks disorderly, who's out of step, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. We use that word tradition in, in two senses. There is inspired tradition, which is obviously the case here as Paul refers to tradition. But we have certain traditions that are uninspired traditions. And they're just that. They are traditions. Uh, if we sing two songs before we have the opening prayer, or three songs before we have the opening prayer, and we always sing three songs and then have the opening prayer, that could be said to be a tradition, indeed. But if we decide suddenly, the elders do, we want two songs and then the prayer, then there's nothing wrong with changing that. That's a human tradition. What Paul refers to here has nothing to do with human tradition. It has nothing to do with the number of songs we sing before we have a prayer. It has everything to do with this book and what is written here. Inspired tradition which he received from us. Now, specifically what is involved? Well, we do get some insight that there was a particular problem at uh, Thessalonica. And that particular problem was that some had just simply decided that they were just going to not work at all. They were just simply going to wait for the Lord to come again, and they had the mistaken idea, many of them did, that he was coming again very soon, so what's the point in working? I'm just going to shut down, uh, close up shop, and, and sit down and wait for the Lord to come. Well, keep in mind that whether or not that was their motivation or not made no difference to the Apostle Paul in terms of how he viewed their actions. He didn't say, well, I know they're, mis they're mistaken about, uh, about the second coming of Christ, and that's why they've given up working, so therefore I'll excuse them in this case. No, he didn't say that. He said withdraw from them. He didn't deal with what their motivation was for not working. But they were busybodies. They were idle. They were going about doing everybody else's business and had shut down their own. Basically, it's what they were guilty of doing. And so Paul deals with that, and he begins to do that here when he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. What's he talking about? Well, he gives us further insight when he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So, what is he saying here? He's saying that the disorderliness specifically addressed in this case at Thessalonica had to do with those who had uh, simply quit working. And they were idle and they were perfectly happy to live off anybody else, but they were not working, yet they were capable of working. That's a key point. It's one thing if, certain, if an individual is, is incapable of producing uh, income, he's incapable of, uh, of producing his bread, uh, then indeed he's worthy of, of help. But he's talking about here individuals who uh, were in a very different category. And he uses himself as an example of someone who could have, could have been paid, if you will, by them, the Thessalonians, as he, uh, the Thessalonians, as he worked among them, but chose not to do so. We were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil uh, night and day that we not, might not be a burden to any of you. We have authority, he says, look at this, not because we do not have authority. In other words, we have scriptural authority for you to support us as apostles. There is scriptural authority for the church to support financially, to support preachers. 
and I'm not upset about that uh, at all. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but uh, trust me, I am. I'm fine with it. <laughs> but, uh, but Paul is saying there was a specific situation that I uh, simply chose to forego that support because I didn't want to be falsely accused in any way uh, by anyone as to uh, what I was uh, doing or what my motivation uh, for it was. Um, if you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, and verse 1 beginning, you see something that ties in to this. He says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. But he had some critics, didn't he? He said, My defense, verse 3, to those who examine me is this. Now listen. He says, do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, that is Peter, which we've already said shows Peter had a wife, doesn't it? Um, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And so he goes on to point out the fact that he has authority to receive compensation uh, from them. Uh, in his first epistle to Timothy, he talked about the laborer being worthy of his hire. Uh, elders who, uh, uh, who, uh, uh, who labor in the Lord uh, should be worthy of uh, double honor, uh, it is mentioned in Scripture. That, that phrase, double honor, incidentally indicates that uh, an elder uh, has a right to be... Uh, paid. Listen to verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. You know what that double honor indicates? It's a monetary term. It indicates that you can have full-time paid elders. That's what he's talking about. Especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And then listen to verse 18. It ties in with the double honor uh, uh, indication that it is financial. Verse 18, after saying the elders who rule well should be counted worthy of double honor. Verse 18, for... Because the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So preachers can be paid. Yes, elders can be uh, paid, and some are who labor full time um, in the Lord. So Paul is not saying he didn't have the authority to be paid. He says, I do have that authority, but I wanted to make myself an example of how you should follow us. I didn't want any uh, misapprehension, any misunderstanding, any false accusation to arise, etc. And so I opted not to accept uh, this. And so then he goes on in verses 10 through uh, 12 to write, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Now he gets to the specifics here. Uh, not working at all, but are busybodies. Not working at all, but are busybodies. Busy working somebody else's business rather than busy working their own, in effect. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, again by his authority, by the authority of Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, does this mean that since verse 6 talked about withdrawing from the disorderly and now he's identified a specific example of disorderly conduct, that is, those who would not, uh, who would not work and uh, could have worked and therefore they were, they were indolent, they were, uh, they were busybodies, 
Does that mean that that's the only scriptural grounds upon which we can withdraw fellowship from anyone is because uh, of uh, someone who will not uh, work, who could work? Uh, believe it or not, I once had an elder, not in this congregation obviously, but I once had an elder who made that argument to me, that um, the withdrawal of fellowship that we've just studied in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 really did not have application to, to anything and everything, but this was specifically a command to withdraw from those who could work but wouldn't work. And that's how we needed to apply it. That's how we needed to apply it. You know, if that is the case, that you could only apply discipline to the things that are mentioned in Scripture specifically, then you'd be rather limited. Someone else has said, and I haven't counted them, that there are nine things mentioned specifically in relation to withdrawal of fellowship. If that's the case, then there'd only be nine things you could withdraw from a person for in terms of sin. What would that say about the matter of those sins? It would have to, it would have to indicate those sins are worse than other sins, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that have to be the conclusion you would draw? That if there are only nine sins... Uh, that you can withdraw from someone concerning if he or she is involved in those nine sins and no others, that would have to imply that those sins are absolutely the worst of all and every other sin can't be that bad because otherwise you'd also be allowed to withdraw fellowship on that basis too. Well, it makes no sense. Obviously, Paul dealt with a specific problem, but in dealing with a specific problem, he set forth principles for all time to come regarding sin of any kind. And any sin that is unrepented of is a sin that is subject to discipline. There's no question about that in Scripture. And that discipline, again, does not necessarily take the form of withdrawal of fellowship, but it begins with what? Admonition to repent of that sin. And if that admonition falls on deaf ears, then we are to carry out the process. But here there was a specific problem with which Paul was dealing. Now look at verses 13 through 15. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, there are those among you, Paul writes, who are, who are, who are not worthy of, of your financial support, of your help physically, uh, they can work. They ought to work. Work is a good thing. The Garden of Eden, remember, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, told Adam, what? Relax and enjoy it. No, dress and keep it, he said. In other words, work was involved. Work is a good thing. Work is a profitable thing. And so he's saying to them, because there are those who could work and should be working but aren't working, don't you, brethren, who are doing the right thing, don't you grow weary in doing good, and don't let their attitude keep you from helping those who are worthy of help. Now, that's not always an easy thing to determine, is it, as to who is worthy of help. But the point is, we don't make a blanket uh, determination that we're simply not going to help anybody because some people are not worthy of help. Don't be weary in doing good, but be good stewards and be as careful as you can be in terms of judging uh, about situations before you get involved in them helping individuals. But indeed, don't grow weary in doing good. But notice this. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, here we come back to it again, as in verse 6, note that person. What's the difference between note that person and verse 6, withdraw from every brother? No difference at all. 
He's talking about the same thing. Note that person and what? Do not keep company with him. In other words, withdraw fellowship from him. But here's something he adds here, that he may be ashamed, that he may be ashamed. That's the purpose. Uh, Should you ever conduct yourself toward a brother or sister in Christ in a way that you are deliberately trying to make them feel ashamed? Yes. Yes. (laughs) On the surface, we might say, well, that that doesn't sound Christian. (laughs) Doesn't sound Christian to conduct myself in a way to try to make a brother or sister feel ashamed. Yes, in this case, that's the whole purpose. We do it lovingly, but we do it in the hope that as we withdraw something precious from that individual because of his or her sin, that person is going to feel the kind of shame that will cause that person to wake up and repent and come home. That's what he's saying. I want him to be ashamed. I want him to be ashamed. Ashamed of himself. Hopefully, hopefully in order to produce what? A return to God and a return to the church. But notice something here. Here's how he tempers this. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And that, that certainly eliminates this false idea of excommunication from church discipline. He's not saying cut off all contact forevermore. Don't you let him in the building. Don't you let him in the worship service if you've withdrawn from him. No, he's saying use that occasion if you can, to admonish him. Not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And use any other occasion that you can to admonish him as a brother. But you cannot continue to conduct yourself toward that individual the way you did before that withdrawal of fellowship occurred. Otherwise, there's no incentive whatsoever for the brother or sister to come home. He or she hasn't lost anything. I've still got all my brothers and sisters. We still eat together. We still go out together. We do everything together. I've been withdrawn from, but I can't tell any difference. No, it can't be that way. It can't be that way. There has to be a change that hopefully will bring a wayward brother or sister to his or her senses. And this is our first introduction to it here, church discipline that is, in 2 Thessalonians. And why the church, to a great extent in so many places, has simply forgotten that these passages were ever introduced by an inspired apostle is difficult to understand. But they are here. They're still a part of the inspired canon of New Testament books. And you add to it 1 Corinthians chapter 5 especially, and then 2 Corinthians where the church at Corinth did what Paul told them to do, and the brother repented and came home, and his soul was saved. And you have more than enough information to understand and appreciate the absolute essentiality of church discipline. Command, 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 command. Four times in the short span of these verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And then in the last three verses, he brings this epistle to its close. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all, except for the brother who's not doing what he should be doing. No, no, he's, he, is, he is wishing well, 
the soul of the individual that needs to repent. He's not going to wish him well in his sin, but he's praying, obviously, that all of them will be able to be at peace. How? By doing the right thing toward each other. By the church doing the right thing toward those who were not doing the right thing, and by those who not, or not, were not doing the right thing, realizing they were not doing the right thing, and repenting and doing the right thing so that everybody can be at peace. Everybody. And the Lord of peace, the one who gives that peace, the only one who can give the only kind of peace that's really enduring and really precious is the Lord himself, the God of all peace, the Lord of peace. Give you peace always in every way. That's quite a wish, isn't it? Quite a wish. Peace for everyone in every way at all times. At all times. Was Paul desiring something or expressing a desire for something that's absolutely impossible to achieve? No, indeed. If we'll all work together as we should, the Lord of peace will give peace to every single one of us in every single way, every single day. We can have it. The Lord be with you all. And then he says the salutation to Paul with my own hand which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. In other words, the indication is I've been dictating this to an amanuensis, uh, to a secretary, if you will, but I'm going to sign it with my own hand because I want it to be known as being genuine. And it would help to keep down any false or pseudo-epistles that might go forth in his name if he signed it with his own hand. Then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul, the appreciation of grace in the Apostle Paul, as we have often said, no one outside of the Lord Jesus Christ understood the grace of God any more than did the Apostle Paul. No one who ever walked the earth outside the Lord, I believe, understood or appreciated the grace of God more than did the Apostle Paul. But by the grace of God, he wrote, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And here he says, I want that grace of that Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be with you all. And that grace is God's favor. And if we are to expect God's favor, God's grace, we are going to have to comply with God's will. And if you haven't done that tonight, we plead with you to do so by obeying the gospel of Christ. Through belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess him freely as the Christ, and then to be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. If you'll do that, the grace of God will be extended in blotting out your sins in the blood of his only begotten Son as you reach that blood in that watery burial where the blood is applied, and as you come forth to newness of life, he'll add you, of course, to his kingdom, the church. And as you labor lovingly and faithfully in that kingdom, even unto death or until the Lord comes again, whichever occurs first, you have the hope and the assurance that that grace will be extended to you at the judgment, but only to those who are his obedient children. If you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that in repentance, confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in a public way, 
as we pray with you and for you. Will you come as we stand and sing to encourage?